0: I'm Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare, Series 1, Chapter 4, Shakespeare's Language, Session 4, Variation in Speech, and Did Shakespeare's Audience Get It All? In the last three podcasts, we focused on Shakespeare's rhetorical devices rooted in meaning, in sound, and in structure. There is one more rhetorical device that is essential to appreciating Shakespeare's poetry that is, variation. As C.S. Lewis points out in his excellent essay called Variation in Shakespeare and Others, there are two ways one can set about describing something in words. One way is construction. You start with one part of your subject and add descriptive elements in a logical progression until the reader or audience has the whole picture. For example, my girlfriend is wonderful. She's five foot four, has blonde hair and very fair skin, blue sparkling eyes, and a great smile. She plays tennis like a pro, gets A's in math, and never forgets where her car keys are. She can be very funny, and she knows how to take a joke. The other way of describing something Lewis calls variation. You try to capture the whole in one image, then in another then another, in a series of attempts at conveying the essence of the thing, or the idea, instead of treating one element at a time. Here is Romeo describing his girlfriend in Act 1, Scene 5. O oh, she doth teach the torches to burn bright, Beauty too rich for use, for earth too dear, so shows a snowy dove trooping with crows, as yonder lady or her fellows shows. And later in Act II, scene two, it is the East, and Juliet is the sun. This, the method of variation, is by far Shakespeare's most common method. Let's look at Prince Hal's soliloquy in Henry IV, part one, Act I, Scene II, lines 195 to 217. Here, the prince is informing us that his riot and dishonor, hanging around with the thieves and drunkards of London, is not really self indulgence, but rather wise political calculation. The prince is alone on stage, sharing his thoughts with us, beginning with an address to his low life companions, though they have left the stage, and ending with a formal rhymed couplet. Here is the speech. I know you all, and will a while uphold the unyoked humor of your idleness. Yet herein will I imitate the sun, who doth permit the base contagious clouds to smother up his beauty from the world, that when he please again to be himself, being wanted, he may be more wondered at by breaking through the foul and ugly mists of vapors that did seem to strangle him if all the year were playing holidays, to sport would be as tedious as to work. But when they seldom come, they wished-for come, and nothing pleaseth but rare accidents. So when this loose behavior I throw off, and pay the debt I never promised, by how much better than my word I am, by so much shall I falsify men's hopes, and like bright metal on a sullen ground, my reformation, glittering o'er my fault, shall show more goodly and attract more eyes than that which hath no foil to set it off. I'll so offend to make offence a skill, redeeming time when men think least I will. Now what do these twenty-three lines of the prince's thought amount to? One single idea that people will be so relieved at the contrast between his present supposed dishonorable behavior and his future apparent reformation that he will win their approval. But this one idea is expressed in about fourteen ways. I will paraphrase these one at a time. 1. I know you all and will a while uphold the unyoked humor of your idleness. I will support you fellows in idleness, frivolity, self-indulgence, only temporarily. 2. Yet herein will I imitate the sun, who doth permit the base contagious clouds to smother up his beauty from the world, that when he please again to be himself, being wanted, he may be more wondered at by breaking through the foul and ugly mists of vapors that did seem to strangle him. That is, I will imitate the sun, which is the more welcome, after a period of overcast. 3. If all the year were playing holidays, to sport would be as tedious as to work. That is, I am now unwanted like tedious work days, but later I'll be desired like a rare holiday. 4. But when they seldom come, they wished for come. I will be like what comes seldom and is therefore wished for. 5. And nothing pleaseth but rare accidents. I will be like a rare event which pleases more than a common event. 6. So when this loose behavior I throw off, eventually I will dump this apparently immoral behavior. 7. And pay the debt I never promised i will pleasingly surprise by paying a debt i never promised to pay eight by how much better than my word i am i'll be even better than what i seem to promise nine by so much shall i falsify men's hopes i'll lead people to expect less of me than i'll finally deliver ten and like bright metal on a sullen ground I will be like gold or silver, seen against a dull background. 11. My reformation, glittering o'er my fault. My reformation will shine the brighter against the dull background of my faults. 12. Shall show more goodly and attract more eyes than that which hath no foil to set it off. My later character, like a jewel set against a foil background, will win more approval than if I had not set it off against my present behavior. Thirteen, I'll so offend to make offense a skill. My bad behavior is not real but planned. Fourteen, redeeming time when men think least I will. This investment of time in apparent dishonor will pay off later, much to everyone's surprise. You see why Lewis calls this method variation. It is like variations on a theme in music. The same ideas conveyed in a lot of different ways, and all of them vivid, apt, appropriate, in short, poetically effective. But why doesn't this become boring repetition? Because, as Lewis also points out, Shakespeare makes his characters, even as they engage in this repetition, Sound as if they are really thinking or really speaking. This is because in life we almost never compose our thoughts perfectly the first time, once for all, in trying to say the thing we mean. In reality, we go at it several times, in various different ways, until the person we are speaking to gathers what we mean. This method of variation allows Shakespeare to make his characters do two things at once they speak in rich and elaborate poetic metaphors that plumb the depths of an idea in vivid language, and, at the same time, they sound as if they are real people really speaking, trying to express what is difficult to say, going at it again and again, till they get it right. Lewis writes, The problem which Shakespeare solved, perhaps unconsciously, is a very difficult one. If the character speaks as living men speak, How are we to have in his language the revealing splendors of imagination? For real passion is not articulate. He must give his poetic metaphors the air of being thrown off accidentally as he gropes for expression in the very heat of dialogue. He must have a slight stammer in his thought, and his best things must not come at the first attempt. For on those rare occasions when real life finds the inevitable phrase, that is how it arises. The man fumbles and returns again and again to his theme and hardly knows which of his words has really hit the mark. Without sacrificing the splendor, he has kept the lower and more factual reality as well. It is the very marriage of the mimetic, meaning imitative of nature, and the creative, and it can hardly be done except by variation this is the magical accomplishment of shakespeare's method of variation the union of realistic human speech and rich poetic imagery into a single experience of meaning now for the answer to an important question did shakespeare's audience get it all we have shakespeare's own word for it that they did not in the prologue to romeo and juliet act 1 the chorus says, If you with patient ears attend, what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. In other words, the speaker of the prologue says to the audience, Whatever you miss in this prologue, you'll catch later if you pay attention. So Shakespeare himself knew that some audience members were bound to miss some things. But the question is more complicated. When we study Shakespeare's language in the ways I have been discussing in this chapter, we may wonder whether Shakespeare's audience could possibly have been aware of this complexity and richness and variety. Were they sitting or standing in the Globe Theatre, registering these elements that we observe when we are looking closely at the text of a play? Again, the answer is both no and yes. They certainly are not counting the stresses of iambic pentameter lines when Romeo is observing Juliet on her balcony, nor are they thinking, Aha, chiasmus, when Richard II is about to surrender the English crown. How many of us, when watching a movie, are measuring the cinematographer's camera angles or noting his lighting system? We can certainly become conscious of these things when we study a movie in detail and that study may well enrich our appreciation of the movie as a work of art. But when we are watching it for entertainment, those elements disappear into the whole experience. The same was true for Shakespeare's audience. Nonetheless, they were conscious of the clarity, the fitness, and the authenticity of the play they were hearing. They would surely have felt uncomfortable if lines failed to scan, or a young man in love spoke in language appropriate to an old nurse, or a noble duke started speaking in comical malapropisms. In other words, they got it all as we get the meaning and quality of a movie or TV show, even if we are not film critics or experts in the art of cinematography. They got it because Shakespeare's art was all of a piece. Every element of language contributed to the total meaning and effect of the play. His audience could feel the quality of the whole in every part, and so can we, if we ready ourselves to receive the experience as it was intended to be received. These podcasts are offered to help enhance your readiness to do that. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare.